Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. We have a couple of events coming up. The first is our Smart Cities panel on October 18th at the Vancouver Club. Our panelists who have expertise in the area of smart cities will go over some of the competitive opportunities and challenges for businesses when we try and evolve our cities to become more dynamic more connected. We also have our Business Excellence Series Strategic Wealth Management Panel coming up November 8th, also at the Vancouver Club. Some of the questions that our panelists will answer include where you can invest your money more wisely, which of the many opportunities actually fit your circumstances, and when it's better to work with institutions versus individuals. Those questions and more will be discussed at that Strategic Wealth Management Panel again November 8th at the Vancouver Club. For more information on those events and our other events, visit BIV.com slash events. Today on the podcast, we'll be speaking to Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. We'll go over some of the housing policies and promises made by Vancouver's top mayoral candidates. Following that, co-host Kirk LaPointe will speak to BIV's weekly tech panel about the latest from Facebook, Amazon, and Google+. You're listening to BIV Today. In the lead up to the municipal elections this Saturday, we've seen a wide range of housing platforms and policies put out by parties and mayoral candidates across the region, particularly in Vancouver, where affordability and housing availability is the top issue on voters' minds. I'm going to walk through some of the ideas that are out there with our next guest. Jason Turcott is the Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group, joins us on the show every couple of weeks. Good to have you on today, Jason. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me back on. There is a, a real range of solutions being proposed in this election, but what's your general assessment of, of what you've been hearing and seeing from the candidates in this Vancouver election? Yeah, I think there there there, there seems to be a common thread, and that is uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of candidates in the in the various municipalities are, I, I guess, leveraging um, the housing issue uh, and all of its you know associated issues uh as a as a major part of their platform um obviously affordability is is one of those major hot buttons but so so are things in some of the neighboring or or the uh the smaller municipalities like traffic and uh a lot of that i think unfairly gets uh blamed on on development and tied in and um you know it seems to be a, a real hot button uh issue um both in terms of the affordability aspect and all of the spin off issues that come Mm-hmm. And we've spoken to you before. There are some challenges, pipeline issues, permitting challenges, uh, issues that are sort of exacerbating the housing issues we've seen in the region. Do you think that the candidates are sort of hitting the right notes? Are people properly addressing what what some of the issues are? Um, I would say uh, on, on a general kind of comment, you know, from what I'm hearing, no, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of there's a lot of platforms of we're going to uh, uh, slow the pace of development or we're going to develop more responsibly. They're sort of, I don't know, they're almost catchphrasey. They're not really talking about what they're going to do. Uh, I think they're just playing the people's um, emotions a little, and, and that's, I suppose, to be expected. There are some candidates, however, uh, that are taking um, sort of an approach where, you know, we need to streamline uh, government uh, 
process at the municipal level, you know, be it uh, with more transparency or, or you know, even even smaller staffs. And you know what, I, I think that you know you don't you don't ever want to wish anybody to to you know to to not have their job. But in some ways, you know, the the levels of complexity and the number of checkpoints in these development approvals process are the reason why it takes so long. So to at least look at that as part of a solution towards um, getting permitting done more quickly, particularly in a market that's changing very quickly, I think is going to be important to keep um, to keep housing getting produced and to, you know, to keep uh, all those good paying jobs in the trades and, and uh, a big part of our economy moving. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see sort of where different candidates lie. We have some people saying we want to completely pause any additional developments. We've heard gentle densification. And then we've heard some candidates say we really want to ramp up development to meet demand. Where do you think we need to be in terms of supply to meet projected demand? How much new housing needs to get greenlit in the region? Well, what I think we need to be able to do is respond to a marketplace that's changing and be able to do that in a relatively efficient manner, meaning, um, and I've spoken not, not on your show specifically, but to a number of people about how these long processes, um, and how, how I'll call it difficult. The approvals process has become in the last, you know, let's say five years has, has almost been underspoken. And, and the reason for that is that the market has been, um, at the same time, on on a run like we've almost never seen before and so what has happened is these long delays haven't actually hurt developers you know in the sense that the market at the end of it has probably outpaced the cost of them having to carry that land and so at the end of the day uh, although you never want to not be in control of your destiny you know it hasn't financially hurt the projects where where you know the squeak you know the people have become really uh, upset about it or developers mm. have 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 been hurt in the pocketbook. What we're seeing now with the market, you know, having is certainly leveled off, or in some, you know, some segments even starting to to pull back a bit on pricing. And the cost side of our equation has, has yet to reflect this. We're still seeing increased construction costs. These long processes are going to really start hurting viability of projects. And if we can't streamline that and and bring them into check to allow us to respond to a changing marketplace. So if there is a niche that is that is looking like it's unfilled, or there is a need for townhousing, or if there's a need for more rental housing, um, that we can react quickly. Uh, if they continue to take three and four or five years to get approvals on, I think it's really going to hurt our ability to react quickly. And uh, you know, and that does have implications on meeting demand. And then even in a softer market, we might see continued pressure. Uh, on a, you know on pricing because we can't supply it when we need to. Mm-hmm, fair enough, and we will have a, a new mayor coming to power. We'll see what happens at the council level as well. It might take some time for these individuals to sort of learn what goes on behind the scenes. But you know how how quickly are you hoping for maybe a turnaround in some of these processes and and changes to take effect? Is it reasonable? Do you think to maybe see something in twelve months? Yeah, I would think there's there's sort of that that feeling out period. I mean, it, I, in a lot and it, and it varies by municipality quite sure. a bit, but um, I think that one of the things that needs to happen first off is staff needs to get a comfort level of where they're because there's going to be so much change on a lot of these councils. And again, I'm speaking more in generality, but I know that a, a lot of municipalities are going to see a lot of new faces on council, 
and with that comes uh, a degree of a of a learning process for staff in feeling comfortable uh, in being able to articulate where this council may lay and and feeling comfortable in their own right of supporting uh, various initiatives or, or applications um, and because staff don't speak for council but they certainly do reflect i think their their or, or or would like to be able to reflect council's appetite for for proposals uh and there's certainly a six probably a six month feeling out process where they're trying to get a sense of what they're all about and then and then they can start to move forward so i think it's you know it's fair to assume that you have to kind of give it at least six months before any you know you can really start to figure out what the change is and then from that point forward um you know, you can make a fair assessment of, of where council stands on particular issues. Fair enough. I want to run through some of the proposed policies that have been debated over the last several weeks. And and what is pre-zoning? How useful is pre-zoning from a developer perspective when you're trying to plan several years out? Well, pre-zoning gives you certainty. I mean, that's what we're really looking for. Um, you know, it it. These negotiated processes, I think, are uh, are problematic, and, and we've certainly talked about that before. Of, of you know, not pre-zoning, and and then you know, having the the goalposts feel like they change on you as you get into uh, into a development. Mm-hmm. I, I think from our side as developers, all we really want is transparency and, and certainty, so that we can go ahead and make an investment and know uh, the you know at least have a good sense of what our our input costs are going to be in order for us to move a project forward. So there's a lot of benefit to that. Um, of course, you know, you take away some opportunity for some creativity and some different proposals if you if you do that route. Um, but I think as a whole, it does simplify a lot of a lot of the steps for us. And I think it simplifies a lot of the processing steps for municipalities. So there's benefit on both sides. Sure. And depending who comes to power, there's been a lot of debate, too, about what to do with official community plans. Some candidates are looking at maybe consolidating the different OCPs into one blanket plan. Some candidates are saying we need to have plans for for all of Vancouver. A hundred percent of the city would have some kind of a plan in place. Uh, if we see changes, how disruptive is that? Is that likely to be? Is it not a big issue or, or would it maybe cause some challenges for for processes that are already in play well yeah there's always that question of what happens to in-stream kind of applications or people who have bought on a on a previous version of a plan you know to think we're going to have a plan that deals with every property citywide is probably an unreasonable goal i think there should be a general plan and and um um, typically, in, in you know, if we get outside of the city of Vancouver, most municipalities do kind of have a blanket official community plan um, for their entire, you know, city or, or their, their, the boundaries of their municipality. And then within that, you have neighborhood plans. And that's, you know, a kind of a, a framework that I think works fairly well. Uh, it does give you some direction on sort of where the municipality is looking to go in general with housing and growth and transportation all those kinds of things so i think that is an effective tool and then but you do need to you know as far as specific land use goes you need to do that on a neighborhood basis because frankly they they change so much i think you're going to have a blanket plan that deals with uh specific land uses that that is sort of citywide i think is probably unreasonable especially when you're talking about a neighborhood or a city like vancouver that is so different neighborhood to neighborhood and and the needs of those different communities are very different 
Mm-hmm. We've seen over the last couple of years, as you know, and as we've talked about many policies at different levels of government aimed at the demand side of things. And in this election, uh, floating around are the ideas of tripling the empty homes tax, lobbying for a higher foreign buyers tax, measures to curb speculation. Uh, what do you think we maybe need on on the demand side of things at this stage now that we do have already some demand policies in place? I probably am not going to surprise you with my answer here, and that is I, I don't believe that there, there there's any room for further demand or need for further demand side measures. And I, and I really think at this point that we need to start looking at the other side of the equation, and it needs to have been done already. I really hope uh, that people are paying attention. Uh, when I say people, I mean the candidates are paying attention to what is actually happening in the marketplace right now. These demand side measures have clearly had an impact. Um, and I think, you know, we need to be sensitive to not just um, trying to further curb demand, but but managing, you know, people's equities in their home, anybody who's recently purchased and not making sure we're upsetting. You know, there's a really delicate balance. And I think that we have probably done enough. Uh, and that's, I'm putting air quotes around, around that um, on the demand side. And I think there's always a risk of trying to do too much too quickly and not fully understanding the implications of it. I think we are still trying to understand the implications of the measures that have recently come down. And that's going all the way back to the implementation of the initial uh, 15% foreign buyers tax and then all of the subsequent changes that have happened since. Uh, I would tend to want to take the approach that we really need to assess those implications and work on processes and streamlining and being able to, like I say, respond to market conditions more quickly and uh, effectively. And and uh, there's all kinds of opportunity, I think, to reduce the costs of new housing and look at the ways to produce affordable housing and market rental housing more efficiently, which will continue to help the affordability problem in our city without having to take you know, equity out of people's uh, um, properties any more than, than has already been done. Jason, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show with your perspective. Thanks again for having me. That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business and Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. Tuesdays, we set aside for our tech discussion with our panel, Linda Focus, who runs the Glue Technology Society. It's a nonprofit that helps older people contend with technology. And of course, she has lots of other experience in the field. And Ali Pourdad is the CEO of Progressa. It's a fintech company based here in Vancouver with offices in Toronto. Good to have you both. Hi there. Thank you. Hey, listen, let's, uh, we have a lot to discuss today. We're going to, I think, uh, focus on the FANG, uh, the FANG stocks, as they say, um, <laughs> Facebook and Google a little later on. Uh, but let's start with Amazon. Linda, Amazon has, uh, has opted to raise the minimum wage, which sounds like a wonderful thing to do. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, though, is pleased with this. Not everybody is getting the benefit. That's right. Some of the uh, employees won't be, will actually perhaps be losing some money in the deal. But I would expect that Amazon saw the $15 mandated minimum wage on the horizon. Mm-hmm. They're moving into the, se- the biggest selling season of the year. They need to hire 100,000 seasonal workers. Uh, so they said, let's, let's do it now and make sure we steal those people away from where they may go to Walmart or Costco or somewhere else. So I it, think it was a smart move. Is is the labor shortage even in the United States, Ali, that 
profound that you, that you have to be out there doing this for sure? I mean, I think this is definitely going to help. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how profound it is at this very moment, moment in time. You see numbers coming out of the U.S. all the time that are showing quite low unemployment rates. But at the seasonal level, at the you know, at the grassroots level, who who, who really knows? And I think this will definitely make a big difference. Yeah. And and I think because of the scope of these companies, Linda, the perception would be that they have money. They have money to do this, that they shouldn't be penny pinching at this point, that if, if anything, they ought to be demonstrating something akin to a kind of a corporate leadership in their commitment to wages to give people a sustainable amount of money to live in a community and stay there. They should be. Should. Except, Except we're looking at Sears and JCPenney just simply, for instance, do not have the funds in their world to uh, throw at minimum wage. Amazon's got a lot of profitable business areas they can pull money from. So this is going to you know, hurt their bottom line a little bit, but the analysts are still rating it a buy. People are liking it. And it, by the way, it was going to happen anyway. Yeah. So this this pinch is going to happen to all of them. Walmart, what is, what is Walmart right now? $12 an hour, mm. right? And, mm. and uh, Target saying we'll get there by 2020, or I might have those numbers backwards. But the idea is this was going to happen anyway. So it, it, It's a constant uh, counterbalance that these public companies have to go through. Right? Is, is it of necessity to- that others are going to follow? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's gonna yeah. it's gonna happen. I mean, maybe maybe not under this administration. Um, it looks like you know Amazon might have uh, beat beat everybody to the punch, and it probably will work out in their favor uh, quite nicely. Um, but it, yeah, it didn't phase the stock, and that's the most important thing for these public companies. Is is the stock going to get phased? Um, and in this case, I think it was well received. And it gets the White House off their back, and it gives them a good news story. <laughs> yeah. Which yet, they need. Yet one of the things that early stage tech companies will do, and I think they, you know, we'll maybe talk about Microsoft in a moment, but uh, certainly Amazon did, is that for people in kind of a middle tier, they offer a lot of other forms of compensation that are a bit soft at the moment, but have potential. For instance, options. Options. Does does this maybe signal that Amazon is thinking about retrenching a little bit and looking at just simply hard wages and not having so many options out there for so many people and and largely giving away some of its future? Uh, yeah, so I can take that first. I, I think this 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 fifteen dollar an hour uh, sort of base wage is geared to their um, production line worker mm-hmm. and not uh, not an employee that typically would would have access to stock options. I'm I I can't speak for Amazon because I haven't actually seen their employee package, but I'm guessing they don't offer stock options to their frontline employees. I'm mm-hmm. guessing that those are available to their uh, technology employees, uh, software developers, uh, senior management, etc. Probably more employees that, that that you would expect that to be more of a market compensation. Well, I understood they did have what they were calling a restricted stock unit for some of these employees. But I, I, I wonder if this $15 is also a move for Amazon to uh, hedge their bets against unionization. It's uh-huh. just going to give them a clear line uh, drawn that this is what we offer our people. Aren't we a great company to work for? We're already giving you what a union might. And maybe the uh, restricted stock units were just kind of a gray area that was harder to calculate the benefit for some people. Is it sure. at least healthy that the wages are rising? That we're not seeing a freeze? In, in, Absolutely Because these healthy, are, these are yes. for America, these in particular, these are pretty great economic times, notwithstanding whatever the white noise is out there. Well, there's a reason Bernie Sanders is going after Bezos. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is rather a horrible statement to say that a third of the workers of Amazon workers in Arizona are on food stamps. Mm-hmm. So Bezos, or, or sorry, Sanders is like, that's not right. 
the richest guy in the world has a third of his workers in a state needing to grovel for food. This isn't right. They should be taking up the slack with increased wages. Yeah. And I, I found the timing of this announcement interesting heading into the midterm elections too, because Bezos and, and uh, Donald Trump are not close by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, no. mm-hmm. So this is actually exactly. a good, good, very good news story for Donald Trump, yeah. along with the economy that's starting to, to boom. Now he's looking out for the little guy and he could probably uh, twist this story in his favor. I yeah. totally agreed. Yeah. Ali, we're getting uh, details now about uh, Facebook's most recent security breach. Uh, it affected fewer people than we thought. Um, my take is that I, I understand it only affected something like one Canadian. Was, there weren't many Canadians. Well, that was affected. me then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, walk us through a little bit about what we now no. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it looks like to it looks to have been an isolated incident with um, their sort of a gateway technology that they used um, for all t- types of purposes. Uh, but really, I think the main purpose is for external companies to be able to utilize Facebook's um, sort of permissioning system and to- um, login system with to, to- with tokens, with tokens, kind of tokens yeah. exactly to, yeah. to make their platforms more seamless for their users. So just sort of make the whole login experience easier, uh, not have to go and ask for information more than once. You know, long story short, it does look to be isolated. That being said, Facebook's not the only company that had this te- technology going. You know, t- Twitter is using the same technology. Uh, Google's using the same authentication standards. Uh, Amazon, actually, I'm not sure if Amazon was, but at least Google and Twitter were. And that and 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 they had the same same security vulnerabilities, and I believe actually that might have led to Google taking down uh, taking down their whole Google Plus platform. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't actually uh, use Facebook to sign into anything else, Linda, but obviously a lot of people do. Well, for the olds, the people that Glue goes after and helps, mm. um, it was a real benefit for them to have one strong password. You're verified through in this case, Facebook, Mm -hmm. and it makes it possible for you to technically be more secure on those other platforms where you would have used your dog plus address as a password. So it it was a good idea. But I got rid of that one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe with an exclamation mark. So, um, so it was a good idea and it's, uh, on that level of security for the people who are challenged with security, I find it incredibly disappointing. They couldn't have uh, made this happen in a secure way, but you know, is it back being secure, do you think? Or is it just forever well, going, I to be, think our, going to be suspicious? Aren't we in a stage where if Facebook says it's secure, are, are you believing that? I'm, I'm going to have a question mark over every statement they offer from mm-hmm. now on when it comes to security. They, they said it's not 50 million users, it's only 30 million. It's like, are you kidding me? That's 30 million uh, <laughs> data records scraped. And yeah. we... And this wasn't a white hat hack. This isn't two 17-year-olds in their basement in Wisconsin seeing if they can break into Facebook, right? This is clearly a black hat hacking situation, and this data is going to be used. Perpetrators already with accounts that had friends, and those friends had tokens, and that, and it just went on and on. And we haven't even seen where this is going to, how this is going to surface. So Mm -hmm. it's there's a a lot of news still to come on this story, clearly, and and they did disclose the 14 million accounts and what was released, and that's gender, religion, location, phone numbers. It's a very disturbing list. At least, Ali, is there enough transparency from Facebook about the breach? to make us feel as if it is a, uh, how would I put it, a company that's prepared to um, eat its words at times around security and, I th- and, and, and 
kind of keep the trust that way? I think they might be in a difficult spot right now because the FBI is investigating. And mm. uh, once the FBI gets involved, and again, I don't want to be a conspiracy theory guy, but it is close to the election. And, uh, and I, I, you know, from what I'm reading, they're being told not to share further right. information at this point, just given the, the proximity to the upcoming election. Um, there are, they are investigating. The FBI is, FBI is quite uh, into the issue and, and, who, and who the perpetrators were. But I don't think we're going to hear too much about it ahead of the election. We might. It could get leaked. Uh, but my guess is we won't. We did just see Facebook pull down two um, accounts from a Russian group uh, for scraping um, offenses. Uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with what we're talking about, but but we aren't going to hear. Will we ever hear the story of what happened? I don't I, know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think post-election is possible. Yeah. For sure. Uh, Linda, you alluded to the fact that uh, Google Plus uh, was was shuttered uh, and all of this. Uh, I think I used Google Plus twice when it started, and, <laughs> and I, I, didn't, I didn't even remember that it actually existed anymore. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised that just now it's getting shuttered. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, <laughs> it wasn't it, four years ago. It's, it's like one of those uh, obituaries where you didn't realize the person was alive. Yeah, and, uh, so, the Mark Twain quote. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, is this all... Uh, a manifest loss of any sort for uh, for Google. Well, I I was listening to Kara Swisher uh, earlier, and I like the idea that this is why Google didn't show up at the congressional hearings. If asked under oath, "Have you been hacked?" Uh. they would have had to either perjure themselves or announce it on live TV in front of Congress. So it's incredibly disturbing that this is March 2018 when this happens, mm. and they have no disclosure. So why did they disclose now? There's no required disclosure. Uh, so that, to me, is the bigger breach. It's it's only 500,000 records um, that they kept quiet until they absolutely couldn't keep quiet. Is it the reason they shuttered Google Plus, or is it the other way around? I don't know. I, I, I think it's it's probably... The, that's probably the reason One they're, of the they're final taking it straws. down. I think so. Yeah, it, it was a security security vulnerability that they they probably just didn't want to deal with. And, yeah, agreed. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they weren't prepared for, and they saw Facebook, uh, you know, feeling the brunt of it, and they just wanted to get ahead of it and shut it down. And it's a platform nobody used. It's exactly. just taking yeah. resources, and it's a it's almost an embarrassment. It has been basically an embarrassment since 2014. So why it has been alive for four years is just. I'm, I'm, remind, I'm reminded of an editorial that the New York Times wrote today on uh, on how there seems to be emerging three different internets. There's an internet for America, there's an internet for Europe, and there's an internet for China. And mm. and Google, of course, is totally got its mitts on all three of these. Right. And, yeah. and it, it is still the big one. It's still the one that actually we point to as a bit of a guide for all of the world's internet. And yet, here it is. It's in... Trouble well, seemingly everywhere. Well, it is. And, and it's getting creepy when we start to understand what is Eric Schmidt saying? We're, we're going to come to the creepy line, but not cross it. Well, what does that even mean? I, I, it's kind of creepy that he's even yeah. using the word creepy. So, so because, because they're happening? creating a search engine uh -huh. for China, Dragonfly, right. that, is, uh, the, that has potential <laughs> not to be great. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're still and they're talking about how they'll even hack that. So are we going, yeah, are we going to see it? Is this an era now of us starting to be a little wiser to what Google's up to? Are we starting to understand what their business model is and how it affects our privacy? Yeah, yeah. it's going to come down to individual governments. I think in Europe, we're already seeing Europe get ahead of all of this. Yeah. Um, in Canada, we have, again, I, I think we spoke about this on either the last show or the prior show um, before that. Uh, we spoke about privacy standards coming into effect uh, very uh, imminently, I think uh, early November. 
Uh, we're going to see new Canadian uh, privacy standards coming in, and and there's going to be a very little tolerance from our government uh, in regards to uh, privacy breach, privacy vulnerabilities. Um, you know, companies are going to have uh, a new standard to follow, and they're having to notify consumers. Um, otherwise, they're going to be subject to big fines. Mm. It's a great starting point. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know it's a very it's a very sort of uh, impactful control that the government's going to put in place because companies are going to think twice before taking risk with and consumer yet, data. We've talked in our discussion today about these gigantic companies. I wonder is any one government necessarily capable of wresting that kind of control out? I think borders oh, are meaningless in oh, this space. Only the U.S. government mm-hmm. is is going to move the needle for those companies. So, you know, Canadian legislation, yes, it's going to impact Google, but they're going to have a small team of three people, three lawyers sitting in a room. They're going to figure out new standards. They're going to roll it out, and it's going to impact their Canadian users, which is just a thumbnail of mm-hmm. the overall users that they have. I this Internet th- Bill of Rights is, is a nice idea, and we hope that it gets a little bit of traction or at least brings up a conversation in the States, but... We would imagine under this administration, it's going to go nowhere. And then when it comes to things like hacking, I read the other day that there is a total of one person in Canada reading Facebook in order to filter fake news out. Uh, it's quite, it's not exactly like a big commandeer to a unit. Um, let's, uh, let's spend a, a minute here or two on Paul Allen, who passed away uh, this week at age 65. Of course, he's a co-founder of Microsoft. He was Bill Gates' partner in all of this. And he left the company at a pretty early stage, one could say. I mean, a lot of the things that we now know from Microsoft really weren't part of Paul Allen's uh, uh, time there. Yet he continued to have a bit of influence, I think you could say, uh, over it. And in a lot of ways, became a conscience of, uh, of technology in some ways, Ali. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he he was uh, instrumental in in that business uh, flourishing in the '90s, and uh, I think a lot of the culture that uh, you know there was a good yin and yang in that business in the cul- in, in its culture, and and he was he was one sort of very obvious side of it, um, and and I think he he you know in many respects saved Microsoft. Because uh, it could have easily gone the, the to the dark side. Yes, <laughs> it yeah. sort of did For, a little further bit. to the dark side. <laughs> yeah, further to the dark side. That's right. But we don't consider Microsoft to be in that camp uh, the way that we might. We've just all been talking about big companies, but Microsoft has now got more of a softer image. They're to always it. left out of the fang conversation. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still, yeah, it's not innocent in all of this. Um, they certainly have their claws in uh, an immense amount of consumer data and their own sort of, uh, you know, privacy standards they need to keep up with. Office communication. Uh, all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um just going back to Paul, though, I think that I mean certainly it's a big loss for the technology community, but also uh, the Pacific, you know, the Northwest. Yeah, uh, he was big in the in the community here, and also in Seattle. He's a great uh, philanthropist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, people credit him with more than anyone else building Seattle. Yeah, the Rock and Roll Museum is yeah. that him? In yeah. many respects, yeah, yeah, yeah for and, sure. The Paul and, Allen Institute is it for neuroscience and the, the um, scientific work the Paul Allen Institute's doing out of Seattle really yeah. impressive. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and even though it's a bit more ephemeral, uh, the fact that he owned two sports franchises that were that, and he, he kept the Portland Trailblazers in Portland when it would have been very easy to move them to a larger market, and in so doing, you could say he's kept the NBA alive in the Pacific Northwest. Obviously, he's got the Seahawks, which you know, one of the most successful 
uh, NFL franchises sold out every game. Like, no question. It'll it will be really uh, quite interesting to see how they, you know, how they honor him at yeah. their next number of games. Yeah, I, definitely. Uh, big shoes to fill. He's uh, he's been great. Yeah. Very missed. Yeah. Um, well, look. Thanks both of you for coming in. Good Thank to see you, you again. Thank you for having me. Linda Focus of uh, Glue Technology Society, Ali Poordad of Progressa. That's our program for today. Thanks a lot for listening to BIV Today. I'm Kirk LaPointe. We'll see you again. 